Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Kerry Lee Merritt, the co-editor of Afterlife, A Collective History of Loss and Redemption in Pandemic America. She's an independent historian, has written one book and edited another, and is always working on multimedia projects and multiple multimedia projects. This is her second appearance on this show. Kerry Lee, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me back. It's always great to be on something like this because, again, you you and I both know how important it is for the general public to really know history and civics and all of those things that so many of us weren't taught in school. Hmm, No kidding. We're trying our best here. That's for sure. Um, Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity that promotes children's literacy. Dedicated to the memory of the millions whose names are unknown. That is from the dedication page of this book. 1.2 million dead, 99 million cases. But really, it's 1,080,472 deaths, not 1.2 million, and 99,241,649 cases, to be exact. At the beginning, almost three years ago, I was sent as a news reporter to cover the fact that there were two known cases at a hospital in Sarasota. Two cases. We went down there just for that. That was a big deal back then. We wanted to know everything about each person. Of course, there was a lot they couldn't tell us because of privacy rules, but um, we were able to find out who one of them was. They came forward. We interviewed one of them. And there was no way to brush over that individual human beings were in danger back then in March of 2020. Kerry Lee, first of all, can we identify a point in our response to this pandemic where individuals became anonymous masses, where 1,080,472 and 99,241,649 became 1.2 million and 99 million because it's just easier that way. When did that happen? I honestly, in in my personal opinion, I'm not going to speak for my co-editors or co-authors here, but I think it happened before this even started and the way that we responded to it from the very, very beginning, as we saw it coming, as we saw what was happening in China and our government continued to sit there and do nothing and basically spread what you know the media calls misinformation, but it's really lies, just spread lies about this virus for so many months that turned into years. And you know, the the massive, massive malpractice and missteps of the Trump administration have even extended into the Biden administration in many ways are still with us right now today. So you know, this has never been taken seriously. It's never been looked at as you know, real people are going to die, real loved ones, real families are going to lose people that they love and cherish. And this is going to change people forever. It has never been taken seriously. Seriously, and it is still not taken seriously. Have you been able, as part of your studies, to determine why that was done? Was that intentional? I think in a lot of ways it was. I think that America has always 
valued profits over people. We have a long history of that. And the fact that we are one of the wealthiest nations today, and we still are one of the only wealthy developed nations that does not have universal health care, even through the pandemic, even today under a democratic government, a democratic administration, and we don't even have a strong contingent of them pushing for universal health care. While we are facing down decades, decades, generations of people with long COVID with permanent disabilities from this, where we are going to have to deal with it, we are going to be forced to deal with it as a government, as a people. And the fact that we just continue to gaslight people, whether it's the government or the media, that this isn't happening is just absolutely unethical, immoral and disgusting. Those individual numbers um, would be one less if my grandma, my grandmother, Mickey Axelbank, hadn't been among the first 10,839 to get COVID and die. April 4th, 2020 is the day she passed away um, at 92 and a half years old, I think. Um, sometimes I forget, honestly, that our family is hardly alone in grieving. There are, if I may gloss it over the way I just counseled people not to, but I sometimes forget that there are 1.2 million empty spaces around the the, the dinner table. Um, the subtitle of this book has the word collective in it. Why do people who have lost someone to COVID need to remember that word collective? I think that when we talk about grief, there has always been power in numbers and there's always been power in community and power in thinking about previous generations and how uh, you're not alone in grief, that everyone on this earth, everyone who has ever lived throughout history has grieved someone who has felt these same feelings that that you're feeling right now. And, and to know that other people have gotten through it, that other people have survived, that other people have even, you know, thrived after going through something so horrible and and so devastatingly sad is is what ultimately gives a lot of us hope. And so we use collective in that sense. And we also use it collective in a sense that, you know, we asked um, 21 different historians and legal experts to, to write essentially anything they wanted to, as long as it kind of pertained to what was going on in the early 2020s, specifically COVID, but also, you know, how COVID um, uh, was being affected by other other factors of American society, whether it was, you know, the rise of Trump and white, you know, blatant white supremacy, um, kind of the, dest- the destruction of a democratic process in many ways. And, um, you know, the, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and massive protests across America, even in the face of this pandemic, and, and gave these these authors, these amazing, amazing writers. And we're talking about, you know, Guggenheim Award winners, Bancroft Prize winners, um, you know, Genius Award winners, all of these really great writers and just gave them the space to write what they wanted about um, their own experiences or what they were thinking about during this pandemic. So in many ways, it is a collective history. We didn't want there to be one perspective. We thought that for, for a topic of this, uh, you know, deep breadth and, and, and it needs to be covered in so many different angles that we needed a lot of different people, a lot of people from different areas of the United States, um, people from different backgrounds, races, ethnicities, religions, uh, sexual orientations, you know, everything you can think of to really tell the history of, of what is what has been going on the last few years of our history. 
you're not necessarily a pandemic historian, but can you, um, we were able to find um, how Americans use the word collective in other, let's say other pandemics or other incidents of mass deaths in this country. Maybe it's the so-called Spanish flu, the 1918 flu, or um, some other example of where Americans grieved collectively together. Sure. We have actually a whole appendix on, um, and again, I am not a medical historian, but we really, Raylan Barnes, my co-editor, and I really kind of took a little mini comps lesson and really dug into uh, the history of of inoculation and vaccination and pandemics and epidemics in America, and really have a nice tight little piece that that would be great to teach with or or you know just share with your friends learning about basic history of America and how we have been you know handling these things since uh, the early colonial period. You know George Washington inoculated his troops uh, against smallpox. We have always done things like this to keep the public healthy. Uh, but obviously, even amidst these, you know, when government was working in ways that it should have been, uh, there will always be diseases, there will always be pandemics. And, and you know, you can look at, at things like AIDS, the way that the AIDS movement uh, you know, progressed throughout the 80s and even 90s in the U.S. And see how they used a sense of collective grief, um, really to turn that into a sense of politi- a political power and, and make it into... Uh, you know, a, a galvanizing, um, you know, political rod that that really helped the LGBTQ plus community gain, you know, m- many of the gains that they have had in the last few decades have been because of that initial organizing and grassroots movement around um, that collective grief with with how AIDS decimated their mm-hmm. communities. Mm-hmm. Um the title, oh, I asked about the subtitle. Let's ask about, I guess I did it in reverse order. If you ask about the title of the book, um, it's After Life, uh, two words, correct, right? Um, some might hear afterlife and think of it as a description of heaven or hell or whatever you believe. Um, what point are you trying to make, though, with that play on words, after and life as two words as opposed to one? So when we started writing this, it was late 2000. We were really uh, had conceptualized it by then and, and started working on the proposal in early 2021. And, you know, at that time, Raylan was in New York. I'm here in Atlanta. And Yahuru Williams, our other amazing co-editor, was in Minneapolis, where, by the way, this is the time where the entire George Floyd, you know, Mur- horrible mur- murder and then the, the trial of Derek Chauvin was going on. And so all of us were in cities that were in lockdown. And, you know, uh, both of, I was here with my family, my kids were out of school. Um, and then my, my two co-editors were completely alone, like away from partners, away from loved ones, just kind of trapped in their apartments in these big cities. And so in many ways, especially for the three of us, we felt like our lives were suspended, right? In in, in very real ways that we were taking lockdown seriously, that we weren't you know, going out, we weren't socializing. Our lives had changed in you know irrevocable ways in, 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 in many instances. 
And so we wanted to to highlight that kind of perspective for so, that so many Americans experience. Um, but as you said, also, it's a play on words of like, this is just such a time of massive death. And even if there is a return to some sense of a normal, you know, what, what we could even conceive of as a normal, there's always going to be this massive grief, this massive trauma um, for many people, PTSD that we need to deal with and we haven't dealt with. And until we do, we're still in some kind of state of, of suspension and this this state of um, we're, we're never going to reach some kind of equilibrium where we're, we're going to be mentally, emotionally or physically healthy. How does this compare? Um, you mentioned the words or the phrase PTSD. Um, how does this compare to the PTSD that we felt? Um, you know, you and I were alive after 9-11. Let's take that as an example. Um, you say in the book, 9-11 changed everything. Pearl Harbor changed everything. The announcement of death there was really loud, right? Like there were clear images and certainly on 9-11, we could see the video of what happened and we could see those bodies falling from the towers. But in this case, it was just different. The deaths that occurred were um, quiet. I mean, my grandmother died and, you know, we were there to see it, but only, you know, her caregivers were right with her. And otherwise, you know, there wasn't even a funeral procession for her because we couldn't gather for that. So how does that change the collective response to a pandemic? I think it changes it you know, greatly that we, this is the first time in, in any of our histories that we literally experience death through digital screens, through phone screens, through iPad screens, through you know having to really distance from people that we loved in their final moments. Um, it, it, it creates a significant sense of loss and unfinished business and, and words left unsaid between families that, again, we're not dealing with. And the fact that we're not dealing with this grief is going to lead to all of the ills that, that accompany that kind of uh, repression in society from you know, elevated alcohol use, which we have seen increase, with, to elevated drug use and deaths from things like fentanyl, which we have seen. And as I argue, even in my own personal essay that looks at deaths of despair and suicide, um, especially in the last you know 40 years in America, is that what would likely happen is that you don't see a huge spike in suicides during the actual pandemic and the lockdowns. But once things, you know, quote, return to normal and people realize that they can't deal with what they've just gone through, that's when you're going to start seeing suicide spike. And again, I think we're beginning to see that as well. Uh, right now, unfortunately. And, and so it's just, that's one facet. The other facet is also that this, unfortunately, like many um, illnesses in America, uh, again, leading back to the fact that we don't have universal health care, that the poorest in this country and even the lower middle classes in this country suffer greatly because we don't have universal health care and also that we don't have hospitals and access to health care throughout rural areas in this country. You know, that's a massive, massive disparity that we don't talk about enough, that there are people in this country that can't get to a hospital or, or a health care facility that could really help them without driving almost a full day. It's, it's again, unconscionable in a country this wealthy that this is the way that we have to live. Uh, you are, and you're alluding to this now, but you're a scholar of race and class, and you point out that 175,000 children 
lost a primary caregiver to uh, COVID-19. Two thirds of those, as you point out in the book, are minorities. How was the pandemic the perfect Petri dish? And why was the pandemic the perfect Petri dish to examine how race and class work in this country? Well, again, it all goes back to the, the non-universal health care, right? And the fact that health care in this country is tied to jobs or tied to marriage. And so when you have that kind of society, you have people that have to work these, these horribly dirty, um, no protection, no worker protection, no PPE, no paid sick time off, no paid sick leave, people that will be fired for calling in. You have all of these jobs that exploit workers every single day. And because of that fact, the poorest and the working class people in this country were going to be the ones to suffer and die at the highest rates. And that's what you have seen. And we, the, the amount of black and brown children now who have lost a primary caregiver is, again, something that is going to be a burden, a, 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 an absolute detriment to these people for generations to come. This is the kind of thing that people can't just recover from, and especially without governmental help. And we are still not seeing governmental help at any kind of rate that will actually do anything to alleviate these people's burdens. That that word that you use there, generation, um, what are the parallels between, well, in the book, you say that FDR said that the Great Depression generation had a rendezvous with destiny. Um, what are the parallels between the generation you're talking about now and those who lived through the Great Depression? Well, so again, coming back to the, the fact that we call this a collective history, that was in many ways an allusion to the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, under the Great Depression that, that FDR and the Congress created um, to alleviate uh, poverty, you know, among the artist communities, among writers. And so it, it hired a bunch of writers to go out and record history, to to interview people who had been formerly enslaved, to interview poor people in Appalachia, to document American history, essentially. And so we, we took that kind of model because not only did we want to record history for history's sake, we also wanted these essays to become history itself, if that makes sense, that one day people can look back and use this as a form of history, because we literally are describing things that happened. We are, you know, in many ways, these are, these are diaries of, of the greatest, some of the greatest historians and legal scholars alive today. These are, these are micro histories of their families. These are things, you know, what they are thinking of, what they're drawing inspiration from in, in one of the worst times, one of the worst periods of their lives. And again, given the diversity of writers that we had work on this, you really see the pain of, of, racism and prejudice in America from from essays by Native Americans to Asian Americans to African Americans. Uh, I, I do want to say you did tell the truth that there is indeed a leaf blower near your house. Yeah, uh, I'm so sorry. No, that's all right. It happens. But yeah. uh, I, I do want to say that we are, we are aware of it to our listeners and uh, there's nothing we can do about it. So we'll hope that they're almost done now. Um, and that's okay. Uh, I want to ask about the book itself, the construction of this book. What made you say that this is a good topic to, clearly you have a lot to say, right? Um, what made you say this is a good topic to edit a book on as opposed to writing this book by yourself? 
Well, again, I don't think any one person can accurately tell the history of what was going on because there there were so many things going on at that time. It was mind boggling. Again, when you start thinking about COVID, it's almost like you separate it from, from Trumpism and what was going on with a literally a coup against our government by our government. And, and the fact that we still haven't charged anyone at a high level with that, like literally we have evidence to be charging members of Congress with trying to overthrow the government and our government is so dysfunctional at this point that we're not even doing that. And so you, you need, you need different kinds of, of thinkers. You need people coming at it from different points of view, different perspectives in order to tell this history accurately. And I have to say a couple of my favorite pieces. Um, I was one of the honors of my lifetime was the great historian, especially of Louisiana and Louisiana slavery, Gwendolyn Midlow Hall, who is uh, you know, a personal heroine of mine, one of the, the greatest white women anti-racists in the Deep South. And again, there's there's not too many of those for, for us white women in the Deep South to look up to, but she was one of them. And uh, luckily, we got to to edit her final essay before she passed away in September, and it's on the Colfax massacre, which occurred, um, you know, next year will be 150 year anniversary of it. And and she she literally talks about how American culture has always been um, has always whitewashed death. Right? We we don't say we say people pass away. We can't even say people die. You know, we can't use that word. We can't use the terminology. And I think about even just culturally, the way that Americans will go to other countries and be completely grossed out by butcher shops or you know animals hanging and 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 butcher windows. And and literally, we cannot deal with death in a real way. I think for so many people in this country, um, especially the upper class and and you know the upper middle classes, where people die in hospitals, people die away from home. And it's there's a there's a complete disconnect, I think, for most people. And um, and she gets at that perfectly through her essay. We also uh, crazily got Keith Ellison, who again was the, the attorney general of Minnesota, who was prosecuting Derek Chauvin, uh, thank God successfully at the time. And I figured he'd end up writing about the trial. And instead he ended up writing this beautifully poignant tribute to his mother who sadly passed away from COVID um, again in that very first wave yeah, in 2020. So I- I was going to ask, how did you choose the authors and did you assign topics and ask them to submit or did you just say, give us your experiences? Give us your experiences. We wanted these people to have creative freedom, right? Whether they were uh, legal scholars uh, or historians, all of these people have to write very generally in very regimented ways, in ways that at least for me, I'm a very creative person and in many ways writing history and even some nonfiction is very stifling creatively. creatively. And so um, we wanted to give them you know, complete creative freedom to do what they wanted to do. And between the three of us co-editors, you know, we know so many amazing writers and historians and, and people that it was it was kind of easy to just kind of, you know, throw names in a bag and and look at what we've got. And but again, this was this was also kind of we, we wanted to get it out quickly, uh, given the nature of the topic. And so it was also who had time to accept this you know, this 
kind of burden of writing a, a 5,000 word essay during, you know, the ravages of COVID. And, and many of these people were involved in elder care or involved in child care. Again, you know, our children were home at the time from school, most of us. Um, and we were supposed to be, you know, being able to work and do homeschool, which of course did not work. Um, and so it was in, in many ways, it was you know, asking all these brilliant people and just seeing who could, who could actually deliver on the promise of getting it in into the press and getting it out um, so that we actually had a good solid history of those early years of COVID before, um, you know, people that, that have less, uh, let's say, historical training, you know, people that, that are not real historians start putting out histories that are not accurate. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, uh, and how did you, did you fact check them? Um did, like how aggressive did you get with what you got back from the authors? Absolutely. Um, all, you know, all three of us were worked extremely hard editing these and, and went back and forth with the authors if there was anything, but honestly, a lot of them, uh, to my surprise, again, I thought so many of them would be heavily history focused and many of these turned into micro histories, histories of their own families. Robin D.G. Kelly, one of my favorite historians, wrote essentially the history of his father, the, the, an, an obituary for his father who died during the pandemic and, you know, was not he was not a good father. He was a complicated man. And he got to lay that on the page and hopefully relieve some sense of burden. And, and again, these are all stories that some of them are, are incredibly difficult to read. And I think my, my personal essay included, but these are stories that I think so many of us needed to get out there and just didn't have, you know, a forum in which to do it. When you got these pieces back, did they neatly fall into the four parts that you um, placed them in, in the book uh, or did you have to then send them back and craft them a little more and say, we want this to be in a section. You had one section about American exceptional uh, exceptionalism, another about mass death and white supremacy, another about um, memory and grief. Uh, did they come back and fall neatly into those categories? Or did you have to say this one might do better if we changed it a little bit? So we didn't have any categories created. We knew we would need to break the book into sections when when we solicited the essays, but we didn't have any preconceived notions of what those sections would look like. And I'm actually the one that came up with the sections. I love that stuff. I'm a total nerd. Um, you know, I, the the PhD program I went through at the University of Georgia was very, very good about thinking about craft and writing a book and writing anything, thinking about craft, thinking about writing as a craft, thinking about structure. And and so I like that. That to me is kind of a, another really creative 
thing to do. It's, you know, it's structural, but it's also creative. And so, you know, as I'm editing all these essays, I'm kind of getting ideas of, of what categories they could fall into. And I just kept playing with it. And at the very end, we maybe shifted one or two, you know, into different categories, but I still think they, the, the four categories really tend to, to show off the different the different areas that we cover. The first one is called American exceptionalism, and it looks mainly at colonization and immigration. And then the part two is mass death and white supremacy, the civil war and civil rights. And then part three, finding light in the darkness, memory and grief. And part four is the reckoning. And so those are, those are some really hard essays to read. Those are the ones I was talking about. Some of them are quite traumatic, but we do try to end the book and even the essays on a note of hope and a note of, of a path forward and, and a way towards redemption. Tell me about your chapter. Uh, your chapter is about suicide. Um, some people during this pandemic literally said, come what may, I'm not isolating. I'm not getting vaccinated. Um, was that a form of at least attempted suicide? And how did you fit that into your own personal story and recollections? I think for a lot of the anti-vaxxers, no, it wasn't. I think for most, I think there's a difference between the people peddling the anti-vax information and the people that believe it, right? The people that are peddling it, I think most of them don't believe it and they're looking to make money and they're looking to sell, you know, cable news and they're looking to sell advertisements and, you know, whatever else. It's, it's all a scam. It's all, again, profits over people. And the people that believe it many times are the people that uh, maybe aren't as well educated, people that have been educated in a system that was inherently racist, people that are lonely and alone and glued to their TV sets and have no lives. You know, these are these are are people that are looking for something, for anything to be angry about. And that's the problem with with you know, the, what I refer to as fascists and, and the white nationalists that, of course, brought Trump into to office. These are the people um, that know how to prey on those kind of people. And so I, I don't think for many of them. And again, right now, what we've seen in the last few months is you know, early in the pandemic, it was obviously hitting the poorest uh, parts of our population the hardest. And of course, given the, the ravages of slavery and the failures of reconstruction and then our horrific Native American policy, of course, that hit Black and Brown Americans the hardest. But what now is what is happening is it's rural white folks, right? It's it's poor whites and it's lower middle class whites and all these people that believe these conspiracy anti-vax theories, because those are the people that haven't vaccinated themselves. Those are the people that haven't vaccinated their children. And those are the people who are dying right now at numbers, you know, higher than any other group of people. Um, your chapter uh, is about suicide. Uh, what what made you write about that? What experiences did you have that made you say this is um, the right marriage between the topic of COVID and what I've gone through personally? So my my chapter is is a lot of my own family history and you know multiple suicides or suicide threats, including uh, my own mother actually, and unfortunately, and. I grew up in a very, very, very difficult situation and still suffer uh, every day um, from chronic PTSD, given the childhood that I grew up with. And it is something that I always wanted to write about, never had the confidence or the courage to write about. 
And honestly, right before I started writing my personal chapter, I had been writing, you know, the introduction and the appendix and the conclusion. And I put my chapter off to the end. And right before I started writing, it, this was in September. So I'd had one of my doses of September 2020. I had one of my, or 2021, sorry, I'd had one dose of uh, the vac- vaccine, but I wasn't eligible for the second. And I had kept my kids out of school for, you know, over a full year and finally sent them back in August. And they both go to schools where it was complete masking policy. You know, uh, one of my kids had weekly testing as safe of a school that they could be at, you know, eating outdoors. Well, it rained one day and my kid ate indoors six feet away from somebody facing an opposite way, but he came home with COVID and it slowly went through our whole house. Um, and again, this was before kids could get vaccinated. And I was, all of us got incredibly, incredibly sick. I was sick for weeks, ended up getting long COVID um, to where I had severe brain fog. I had problems speaking and making sense, uh, coherent sense when I was speaking, honestly, for months afterwards. I know I had some brain damage. I couldn't smell, taste for months and the one saving grace I had was I could write, I could write. And so I was actually writing while I had COVID and while I was kind of nursing the whole household through COVID as it made its way one, one through one, uh, one by one through us. And um, I could have written about COVID and our experience with it, but this was a story I wanted to tell. And so I'll just read a couple of uh, paragraphs to give you an idea because it's, it's hard for me to talk about, but um this is not the worst part. So it's, you know, a trigger warning, but nothing horrible. Um, by the time I was in kindergarten, my mother had fallen deep into her illness. Although she was never properly diagnosed, the closest doctor came was treating her for bipolar depression, and she consistently refused to take the medication anyway. After decades of research on the matter, my best guess is that she had borderline personality disorder or BPD. BPD is characterized by extreme mood swings and volatile relationships. Inappropriate, intense anger, abusive tendencies, and threats of suicide are common in people with a disorder. My world was volatile, neglectful, and horrifically emotionally abusive. I had the Sisyphean task of raising three younger sisters while keeping my constantly suicidal mother from following through on her threats to kill herself. I became an extension of my mother's own psyche. I existed as her protective bubble, shielding her from the outside world. I learned the hard way that I had to devote myself to fending off the smallest thing that might set her off at least mitigating its flow as much as I possibly could. I became, out of an acute need for survival, my mother's emotional sieve. I absorbed all of her wretched pain, all the world's troubles, allowing the good to pour straight through me to her so quickly, I never got the chance to enjoy it. I had so naively hoped and prayed that something good might possibly diffuse some of her constant, unprovoked anger. Looking back, I finally realized what an impossible task this was for a young child. At the time, though, there was no thinking. There was only surviving. And how did that, um, how did that make its way into an essay about our collective experience with COVID? Um, so the essay actually starts out talking about my great grandfather killing himself or killing himself during the Great Depression, and so linking those times of high suicide and economic despair, um, which of course, you know, a lot of people aren't thinking of now, but in that first year, year and a half of, of, of the pandemic, 
poor and working class people were in horrible economic despair. People were being kicked out of their houses. People were being kicked out of their apartments. Um, you know, most of the, the service industry lost jobs. And so, again, it's when we're talking about loss on the scale of what we've just seen in the past few years, there's not a single person in America that didn't have some type of loss. Even if you didn't physically lose to, you know, to death a person that you love, you lost a job, you lost a relationship, you lost love, you know, a, a lover, you lost a marriage, you lost um, a, you know, an educational program, you lost a year of socializing, two years of socializing. There are so many different types of losses, again, that none of us are dealing with. And it's almost like we've been gaslit into thinking that none of this even happened. Well, thank you, for, certainly for reading that chapter. I'm sure it's not easy to talk about. Um, I wanted to ask about Heather Ann Thompson, who's somebody else who I know from Twitter um, and a Pulitzer Prize winner and certainly very well decorated as an author. Um, what is the connection to mass incarceration that she writes about? Well, of course, the um, death rates in any kind of contained space, you know, whether it was nursing homes, hospitals, uh, you know, any kind of contained space, factories, fa chicken factories was, was you know, a huge place, meat, poultry factories, huge place of death. Anytime people were gathered together, that is obviously the way that we saw all of those you know, massive numbers of early deaths. And so jails and prisons became, unfortunately, a place of widespread COVID and widespread deaths from COVID, because there's literally no way to keep the virus from, you know, just spreading all around in a place where you've literally got human beings huddled in these little cells like livestock. And so her chapter is incredibly powerful and makes, as she is wont to do, you know, makes even the most staunchly, you know, pro-prison, anti-crime person have to feel some sort of empathy for the prisoners themselves and and put themselves in the shoes of people that literally, you know, many of them have done nothing more than to succumb to illnesses of addiction. Never mind the medical and public policy response, but are we emotionally ready for the next one in light of what we're still going through and what we've been through? Oh, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think that's actually a big part of why so many people are in total denial that we're still going through it, right? Because we we can't deal with the reality that there are people dying every day. There are hundreds of people dying every day, sometimes thousands. And, and we are just turning a blind eye. We have left our disabled community, the people who have chronic illnesses, the people who are going through immunosuppressive treatments, we have left them with no options to have any kind of life in this country. You know, we, we have shown in the past year, certainly, but also in the past three years, how intensely individualistic our society has become and how intensely selfish we have become, I think. And it's it's really, really disheartening. And I'm, I'm certainly not putting everybody into that category. And we, again, we do end on a call to action and end on a call uh, to hope and to, to actually doing something to change this. And I do have faith in the labor unions and people who are trying to to form unions and people who are trying to fight for labor rights and organized labor. And I have faith in the younger generations and, and the young people in this country who came out to protest in, in the Black Lives Matter 
protests um, in record numbers, and especially for young white people. You know, you've never seen this many young white people go out and protest on behalf of black and brown people in America at rates like they did in 2020. And so it's you know, there there are ways to be optimistic and hopeful about you know, anytime there's there's a period of big change in America, anytime, whether it's, you know, after the Civil War, um, after the Great Depression, anytime you have that, you have the chance for things to go really badly. But you also have this brief period, this window of hope to, to push things forward and to really, really, really make a change. How do you imagine more time going by would have impacted your pro your approach to doing this book. Um, you're writing this in the middle of the pandemic. Let's say you were to write it or you, you were to co-edit it 10 years or 15 or 20 years later. Um, how do you imagine that would have changed the perspective and what does distance do to a historian's effort to put everything together? It's a really good question. I've actually been thinking about this some because I think what's bothered a lot of activists lately is how quiet things seem to be from an activist perspective, right? That we had all this momentum and and fighting for, literally fighting, talking about that Black people's lives mattered, that they shouldn't be murdered in the streets. And people feel like we've lost this momentum. And, um, and it's really difficult because... In many ways, it seems like we have, but I hold on to that hope that we're still in a civil rights era because when you look at long movements, and I'm sorry, I have a black son who's turning into a teenager right now, and to know that he has to be in a world where he says the wrong thing to the wrong person. And, um, you know, he looks like he's a young teenager, and I literally have to worry every day about his life in America. And that's something that I think a lot of white people have no idea about. Um, we've got to get back on this, but we've also got to realize that this, these civil rights movements, sometimes they're decades long and that people need time to take care of themselves, to take care of them, their families, to just regroup and rest and, and heal their bodies and heal their souls. And so I think that's part of what healing from the pandemic looks like too, is that people just need time. They need to rest. They need to recuperate. They need to get their health back on track mentally, emotionally, um, physically. And, and don't let that put you in a sense of despair though, because the movement and the feeling is still there. We just need to make sure that people have time to rest and relax and not overburden themselves and not overwhelm themselves and not literally make themselves die at an earlier rate than they should. Because again, we're seeing people drop dead left and right in their 40s, 50s, early 60s from heart issues and from things that have to be related to some sort of long COVID. Um, I'm certainly sorry that I've brought you down this emotional path uh, today. That was not my intent with these questions, but I appreciate your opening up to us. And I'm certainly sorry if this triggered you uh, at all, Carrie Lee. Um, uh, we have monuments in this country to Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and to the Vietnam uh, veterans who have died or the Vietnam uh, service members who have died. We have a memorial to Martin Luther King. Um, what would a memorial to COVID victims look like if Carrie Lee Merritt could design it? 
Wow. I, would, I wish I, I need some time to think about that. But honestly, I would be honoring, you know, in many ways, the laborers, the, the people who were the essential workers, whether it was people bringing groceries, people stocking grocery stores, people in healthcare. Um, again, and, and these are the people that I think about healthcare workers right now, the type of burnout they must have they must have at this point. And the fact that they're literally having to treat people that don't do anything to help themselves, that don't get vaccinated, that don't wear masks, that don't do any of the things they're supposed to do. And they have to put their lives on the line every single day to keep taking care of these people in a system that doesn't give them breaks, that doesn't give them, you know, real vacations, real time off, real, real ways to deal with their emotional and mental states of having to deal with this day in and day out for going on three years now. And, um, and again, the people that are working these low wage jobs with many of them with no benefits, with no health care, that are putting their lives on the line every single day to make sure people eat, to make sure people have electricity, to make sure people have water, um, then to make sure that your trash is gone. You know, these are the people that need to be honored. These are the people that saved America. It's not the government. It's not the government. It's the workers. Um, I was thinking about the idea of a memorial wall. Can you imagine? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but maybe you've been to the memorial wall to Vietnam in Washington. That's super long, and it's you know sixty thousand Americans on it. Um, Nine Eleven Memorial. I'm not sure if you've been there, but of course, there's. It takes all day to read those names, right? Imagine how big a wall would be if we had 1.2 million and counting names on it. Um, and maybe a star for every American case, right? Like how big, how, you know, would, you would never be able to fit 99 million stars um, on a wall or on a piece of marble or something like that. Um, so I'm wondering how that idea strikes you of a memorial wall. The problem, I guess, is because it suggests that it's over, that it ended. And, you know, the Vietnam War had a beginning date and an end date. This doesn't have that yet. Yeah, if it was up to me, I would do, again, another pro. Uh, some kind of project like they did um, in the Great Depression where you're hiring local artists and especially local artists from underrepresented populations and giving them governmental money to create their own monuments in their own communities. That That's personally what I would do because we don't, you know, you, you create a national monument and how few people get to see that, you know, how few lucky people in this country get to see that. So let people decorate their own communities, let people create art in their own communities, pay people in their own communities. Uh, what other projects are you working on? Um, the ones you're ready to talk about, you're always, you've always got like a hundred things going at once. And anyone who follows you on Twitter knows that you've got your hands in so many different um, ventures. Uh, so give us a look. What's, what's the life of Carrie Lee Merrick like, at least professionally right now? So we have made big strides with the Civil War documentary, and we did our first round of interviews and created a little video and sent it out to everyone in the industry that we knew and got feedback on that. And I'm happy to say the last time I was in New York a couple months ago, I met with an amazing multi-Emmy Award editor who I am going to start working with, and he is editing right now our, our uh, 10 minute reel so that we can start getting that out to investors uh, should be actually done with that by the and end of this year. What's the goal of the documentary? 
Um, it is to tell the story of the Civil War, and it's going to be a single feature-length film, given the feedback that we've gotten. Can you and do that in is, two hours? I'm just curious. I think we can to do the to <laughs> do the thesis do it in that we hundred hours, right? Right. Well, and but that's that's also a problem with um, catering to younger audiences, right? Is that old Ken Burns model of you know ten episodes? Just a lot of people aren't going to watch that. They they want their information quick. They want quick quick editing styles. They want um, you know fast younger approaches. And so I think if we do what the thesis that we want to do, which is the essentially the Du Boisian thesis, uh, W.B. Du Bois, is that the enslaved freed themselves, not only by stopping work on plantations and farms throughout the South and escaping to union lines, um, but also because Black men ended up comprising 10% of the union army at a time when poor white men were fleeing from the Confederate army and they are essentially what ends up winning the wars from a battle perspective is that influx of, of so many black men into the Union Army. Ken Burns, Kerry Lee is coming for you. Um, will Will you stay on Twitter? Uh, I, I am right now. I, I honestly, I mean, it's really disheartening. And I unfortunately made the stupid Antifa whatever list that uh, was going around. So I was being kind of targeted for a little bit. But, um, you know, I, I spent years creating that following and trying to cultivate that following and and following people I really respect and admire. And I'm on Mastodon, I'm on Instagram, but, you know, it's not the same. It's not the same. And I know in some ways it feels, it does feel like kind of a graveyard right now, but um, I until something crosses the line for me personally, it is a way to connect with, you know, 20, whatever, 27 plus thousand people that I wouldn't ordinarily be able to connect to at this point. So absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good news for one of those you've connected to uh, right here. Uh, Carrie Lee Merritt, the co-editor of Afterlife, a collective history of loss and redemption in pandemic America. Thanks so much for being here today. And I appreciate your sharing your very personal experiences with us. Thank you for having me. Check out the book, check out her website, carrieleemerritt.com. She's on Twitter at carrieleemerritt. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.